0: Today, according to the AP, giant crowds of protesters are packing Cairo's Tahrir Square and marching in other cities, vowing to stop a draft constitution that Islamist allies of President Mohammed Morsi approved hours earlier in a rushed all-night session without the participation of liberals and Christians. Anger at Morsi even spilled over into a mosque where... The Islamist president joined weekly Friday prayers. Now, in his sermon, the mosque preacher compared Morsi to Islam's prophet Muhammad, saying the prophet had enjoyed vast powers as leader, giving a precedent for the same to happen now. And on the phone is the editor and chief of Gawker over in New York. He was there recently. By the way, his name is A.J. Delorio, and he was there with Animal New York editor Bucky Turco. They were in Cairo covering the protests even a couple of days ago. Good morning, A.J. Good morning. How are you? All right. Thank you. But now you were back in New York City. So how did you find yourself in Cairo? Uh,
1: it, was, it was actually a somewhat last-minute decision we did um, we were attempting to go to Gaza. Um, we had booked a flight to Cairo, and we had a fixer all lined up in Cairo to take us to Gaza. Um, but the ceasefire happened, and then as we, you know, got to Cairo, we realized that there was uh, some, you know, interesting and potentially just like world-shifting stuff going on there. So uh, we decided to stay and, you know, covered as best as we could. I mean, not knowing you know, too much about the whole entire situation, and we were kind of coming up to speed just while we were there. And um, also, just you know, this is new territory for Gawker, obviously, because we never really had on the ground international coverage in any shape or form.
0: And is, is it difficult to fly into Egypt these days? Is that a complicated process?
1: It wasn't at all. Um, you know, I, I mean, there was a you, know, you paid a fifteen dollars visa fee as soon as you showed up, and that was just pretty much like you know buying an all day. Pass at a theme park, essentially. I mean, uh, there was there. I was expecting at least a little more of a hassle, but um, I, I think they questioned me more when I came back to the United States. than be going into Egypt, actually.
0: And what, what what was that like? When you say they, uh, the authorities at the airport, or
1: yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was just customs and um, you know the U.S. immigration. I mean, it was just they were just questioning me about why I was there, why I was there for six days, why I had one bag, sure, <laughs> and. uh that that was pretty much it. But I mean, as far as like getting into Egypt, it was it was easy, and getting out
0: was just easy as well. And once you are there, I'm sure that uh, things are. I, well, are, are they chaotic? They certainly seem that way when I watch cable news with the the protests happening and just the authorities that are cracking down. It, it seems like a truly dangerous place. Is that what you witnessed?
1: Well, that that was it was it was interesting because we we showed up at our hotel. Was around a half a block away from Secure Square. And we'd gotten the, you know, I, I think anybody should, I think everyone should experience an Egyptian cab ride at some point in their lives because it's pretty much the closest thing you'll get to like a Jason Bourne thrill ride. Nice. Um, you know, they have no really discernible traffic laws, uh, headlights are optional. And uh, where we were was right in the middle of protest. So we pulled up to our, uh, to the lobby of the hotel and, there were around 20 protesters basically destroying a truck right in front of it. So the cab driver had pulled us around and attempted to go a back way, and by the time he got there, the truck was on fire through the so move hotels and then went across the Nile. But it was interesting because, as you know, coming right into it like that, you felt like there was you were in the heart of chaos. But you know, the longer we stayed there, you figured out that it was very localized. You know, there were other neighborhoods in you know, scattered across Cairo which had minor protests, but I mean, as far as like the square would go, it was the same thing day after day where there would be, you know, scores of protesters who were very, very young. I mean, most of the people there don't even consider them protesters. They do just consider them kids fighting with the police. And that would happen just daily, but it was, you know, there was tourist there was tourism going on at the same time. Um, you know, there were people sunbathing just right above all this stuff. And you you find out that I think there's there are parts of Egypt who are who are kind of rolling their eyes at this whole entire um, their latest movement in an attempt to add a revolt because it has become like really just bad kids every single night going out and taking advantage of the fact that there's like, a free pass to throw rocks at the police.
0: But what do you think the mood is in the country, by and large, that they are indifferent to President Morsi's power grab? or?
1: No, I don't think they're indifferent at all. I mean, I, I think there's, there's, you know, we talked to a lot of people who were, you know, part of the Muslim Brotherhood who are you know, pro-Morsi at this point. And, like, then there are a bunch of other people, and that's, I would say, the majority of Egyptians, especially just, like, you know, the whatever's left of their middle class, who think that you know Morsi's power grab is basically reflective of the same way Mubarak was running this country, and you know they're obviously not going to take that, and they feel like as soon as it as soon as he kind of makes this sort of power power grab, it kind of throws them back into a dictator situation.
0: And I've read stories about sexual assaults that were happening in Tahrir Square, yeah. and is that something that you witnessed?
1: Well, I didn't witness the assaults but I mean the harassment is daily um, you know it's it's shocking to witness because it happens you know it starts out at such a young age and they're, they're very subtle about it but you kind of get the gist that you know it, it happens it's so prevalent that there needs to be a complete shift in the attitude there which I think is going to take a very very long time and that was one of the things where I think if there's anything that needs to be done in that country immediately, I mean, it should be some sort of PSA or movement to really kind of just educate a lot of these kids on exactly how to treat women at this point.
0: Oh, of course, that's just horrifying to me. When I when I read those stories about women that are attacked, uh, just, uh, attacked on the street, but in a sexual way as well, it just it's it's horrifying to me. To imagine yeah. that is is commonplace. I, I don't even uh, I, I I would hope that that would change, and of course, it will at some point, I would think. But so when you were there uh, traveling around, and how many how many days were you there for? At uh, six altogether, and was it difficult to speak to people or find those to to talk to to get information?
1: Uh, we did have, uh, I guess, what you call it an interpreter. I mean, there, we had a friend's cousin who was a local, and and he did a lot of uh, introduced us to people and was there to kind of translate for us a lot of the time. But uh, for the most part, I mean, there were a lot of people that spoke English too, um, so it wasn't that difficult and uh you know we adjusted on the fly most of the time but i i really didn't have any problem kind of just like finding the questions that we were
0: looking for and when you were introduced as someone who is from the united states were they uh leery of talking to you or did they speak to you like they would anyone on on the street
1: it depended where it was i mean in while we were in Kent city interviewing people which is like in the heart of Fisher square I mean, there is a definite, very palpable skepticism of any person who's a Western journalist. Um, you know, they, there are a lot of people there that consider anybody outside of the country almost uh, being a spy in some way. So there were some times where people kind of questioned exactly where our interviews were going and who we were working for, et cetera.
0: And did you have any interaction with the authorities, the police, or people from the military?
1: Uh, well, they have, they have this unit called the Central Security Forces, which is essentially just like a JV army is probably the best way to describe it. Um, and those are the police, I guess you could call them, but I mean, they were there to basically disperse the riots. But it's interesting about them is they're about 15 years old too. Um, and they're very disorganized. Um, you know, we, we were witnessing like a lot of their disbursement methods and I was like scratching my head because these guys are throwing rocks right back. Um, you know, and I think that, that there's really not a, a very active police force in the traditional sense that we would think of it, and it just seems like that they are there potentially just to, like, fight with the protesters if stuff gets really out of hand, then the actual army comes in.
0: When I see these images on TV, typically it's just a quick report on CNN or MSNBC or any of these stations, and they run the footage of uh, the tent city or protesters lobbing rocks. Yeah. But did you see people being detained and taken away, or?
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, I think the detainment is is kind of interesting because I mean, like we witness the, the CSF. I mean, being almost in some cases, more aggressive than the protesters were. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there's, like the CSF is there to actually do or keep the peace. I mean, I think they are there and almost as aggressive or more aggressive than the protesters sometimes. I mean, this is an, an actual fight that is happening right in front of your eyes.
0: And since you were there for six days, what, what did you learn overall? Or what, what is your impression of what's happening there right now?
1: Well, I... I you know, two things. I, I, for the most part, I, I would. I I'd hate that. I wish there was a better word than inspire, but you can see exactly just you know the makings of a revolution, or at least an attempt at it, you know, happening in real time, which was something that I don't think I've, I've ever seen before in my life. Um, you know, I've been to Occupy Wall Streets and whatnot, and, and this is is being done with a obviously a lot more passion and violence than you know those protests were. But uh, I, you also see a country that's really in disarray, like in a head-slapping way almost. Um, but I, I think there's – I wouldn't say it's unsafe either. I think that's a little bit uh, wrong of, I guess, just like mainstream media, just to show all these protests like time in, time out, and just like it looks like it's a city in a country that's turned into chaos. Because um, there is a way to travel around it. You can go – a mile and a half outside of your square into Zamalek, and then is essentially just, it, it's probably the equivalent of just the Hamptons in some ways.
0: And I saw in the comments section of uh, a couple of your, your gawker stories, some people were taking issue with the idea of you parachuting in and then just jumping uh, out quickly. How would you respond to those who were critical of your, your trip there?
1: Well, I, I can understand it, but I think also at the same time, I mean, there's, there's no way, I, I think when you. We do parachute in, and uh, I mean, there are a couple of other journalists who have been covering this for a while who had the same objection, but I, I think anybody can go there and see with their own eyes some of the stuff that's happening right in front of it. Um, in terms of just, like, the, the nuances of it, I, I mean, I think that the stuff that is basically so ongoing that, um, you know, I, for me, it's just going there and trying to kind of relate to this as a person who's essentially on the outside and trying to kind of, you know, Really digest everything that's going on, and I think anyone can actually do that and get up to speak about it quickly. So I don't think it really matters that much in terms of how experienced we are, or if this is offensive in the way we're presenting it. Um, you know, we're not trying to do Wall Street Journal, or you're trying to play. and they're doing a very good job at it. But, um, you know, for me, it was more about kind of saying, hey, can we actually just cover this type of international news, and can it work on Gawker? I mean, that's still yet to be seen. But, uh, you know, for me, I think it just this is a very good recruiting trip more than anything else.
0: And do you think you'll go back at some point?
1: I would love to do another, something along those lines, at least now having this experience under my belt to them. Um, because, I mean, I think we quickly realized just like how unprepared we were in some ways. Um, but I think for the most part, I mean, what I'd like to see happen is I'd love to set up, have some freelancers that are covering it like a lot of these hotspots like, regularly, and have them do some of the stories that their publications may not be, you know, game to actually publish. And, uh, you know, I think that's, like, the point of Gawker is to kind of do some of the stories that the mainstream media is kind of at least overlooking or just not focusing on.
0: Thank you so much for talking to me, A.J. And just so I don't mangle your last name again, would you pronounce it for me? Sorry about that. It's Delario. Delario. Okay, I got it. All right, thank you again, A.J. All right, thanks, Tom. All right, take care. That is A.J. From Gawker, he is actually the editor-in-chief.